in the modern political environment around Israel, there is a lot of stuff pertaining to the Bible that gets bandied about in American public discourse. This has a lot of areas it can go to, and it's stuff that I'm not real learned about. Here on Plainspoken, I focus mostly on the the here and now and, and people here and now, but I also, I like to think I know something about the Bible and something about history and doctrine. One of the areas I'm kind of weak is eschatology. If you don't know that that word, that's the theology around end times. And, um, you know, growing up in the church, I grew up mainline United Methodist. I did not deal with the left behind stuff, dispensationalism, Darby, Schofield, all of that stuff in the last 150, 200 years in America. It, I, I barely came up against it in seminary. It seemed to me like where all the crazy people are, and I just didn't want to go there. And so I just read my Bible and, and have tried to piece it together as best as I can. But here, all of a sudden, we have all this violence in Israel. Uh, we got the red heifers. We got the third temple maybe about to be built. We got thermonuclear war, maybe end times. There's a lot of crazy stuff that that might be happening, and what does the Bible say about that at all? I hear a lot of fervent believers say nothing, and I hear a lot of fervent believers say everything. And so I knew I needed to talk with someone a lot smarter than me, and that's what this conversation is. This is a conversation with a gentleman named Vic Reasoner, who is an expert in uh, Wesleyanism, uh, theology, and I assume history as well, because the two are tied together. And he's, he's been in this field a lot longer than me. Since I started doing Plain Spoken a year ago, I've had so many people email me saying, hey, you should talk with Vic Reasoner. And so he and I have been going back and forth figuring out what the most fruitful conversation would be to have right now. And I think my intention here in talking to Vic, and I'll bring him on in a minute, is that he help. My, my natural leanings are, I've just recently learned, I, I'm somewhat of a dispensationalist. I, I believe that God honors various covenants made throughout the Bible. We'll define all this here in a minute. But I, it's occurred to me that there are very many very faithful and very educated people who think that that is a wrong-headed way to interpret the Scriptures, and I need to do my part to understand that, even if I don't eventually find it compelling. I mean, there's no way to know. But I figure there's a lot of other people who perhaps understand one side better than the other, and Mr. Reasoner could help me make my way through. So before I bring him on, I found a bio for him on the um, Francis Asbury Society. He's tied to the Francis Asbury Society. He's also tied to the Fundamental Wesleyan Society. Uh, so we'll, we'll hear him talk about that a little bit here in a minute when I bring him on. But here's, here's a setup for him. Uh, Dr. Reasoner longs to see Christ's kingdom expand through personal holiness and global revival. He begins this new phase of ministry committed to prayer, preaching, and teaching, research, writing, and publishing. He told me before we turned the cameras on, he's published over 50 books. Um, For too long, the academy and the church have functioned as two separate spheres, and we need to study as an act of worship and including the teaching in the life of the church. So Charles Wesley wrote, quote, unite the pair so long disjoined knowledge and vital piety, learning and holiness combined. So that's Vic's dream. He wants to see the Francis Asbury Institute facilitate that vision as well as I'm sure everything he's connected to. So he was a pastor for 44 years ministering in Kansas and California, West Virginia, Kentucky, Georgia, and South Carolina. Oh my goodness. But he was always involved in kingdom work beyond the local church. He has been involved in the leadership of ministerial associations. He's volunteered for hospital chaplaincy. He's served as a camp meeting president. He's led a chapter of the American Family Association. He's had two articles published in the Wesleyan Theological Journal, uh, also through the Fundamental Wesley Society. They have uh, a magazine called the Ar- Arminia Magazine, which is a very serious publication. You should check that out. Uh, 
Um, since his first book, published in 1991, he's been involved in writing, editing, and or publishing, well, at this point it was 42 books. Some of these books have been translated into seven additional languages. Um, I'm going to skip the next paragraph. Vic received the Bachelor of Theology degree from Kansas City College and Bible School in 1977. He received the Master of Divinity degree from Talbot School of Theology, Biola University in 1987 with a major in church history. He received the Doctor of Ministry degree from Asbury Theological Seminary in 1994. So his wife, Cindy, teaches sixth grade English, literature, and history at Trinity Christian School. Her passion is to weave biblical knowledge and character development into her curriculum and influence these young lives for Christ. Uh, they have five daughters. Oh, God bless you. Ten grandchildren and one great-granddaughter. Vic and Cindy ask that you include them both in your prayer list as they uh, have begun new ministries, and I, that was, must have been published a couple years ago. So yeah, you, like I, uh, have been formed by your wife and, and family ministry. I'm going to bring you on camera now. This is Vic Reasoner, everybody. Vic, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you, brother? Fine. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I appreciate you being so easy to work with and set this up with me. Um, and I appreciate you being available to a, a broader kind of lay audience. I think that's, that's I, I know there are a lot of clergy who watch me, but it's mostly a lot of laity who want to know what Methodism really is about and kind of the worldview that we carry into it and how we read our scriptures. Um, this this conversation you and I are going to have today piggybacks up off of a conversation I had with Matt Sickle about Wesleyan distinctives, and you, for you part, your part, have written up your own understandings of Wesleyan distinctives that I'd like to, to publish along with this video in the end notes that people can go to it and, and consult the essentials okay. of, of what you like. Uh, but we're going to talk about eschatology mostly today, and you're going to help me understand some some areas that I'm lacking, and hopefully some other people as well. Before we get into that, there are obviously things lacking from your bio here. Um, as people listen to you, obviously you're you're capable in the academy. Uh, there's, for better or for worse, a, uh, a stereotype about uh, academics that they're disconnected from the local church and the concerns of lay people. Uh, if people didn't pick up on that, you you did serve in local churches for 44 years. One would hope that you have learned to align your uh, thought with the concerns of laity, but what, what other things are important to know about you so that people feel like you're a voice that they can trust? Well, I think um, speaking in the real world, I have uh, had to look at my prepared notes every week for over 44 years and ask this important question, so what? That's a good question. And, and um, sometimes in the academy, um, we we lose sight of that question. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I'm always rooted with one foot, at least, in in the realm that uh, that my hearers live in. And and the real important thing is that I not try to impress you with what I might know. We're all experts in our own field. Everyone has a uh, a contribution to make. I don't need to prove I'm better than someone or smarter than someone. Um, but my passion is, is 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 that the Bible is alive, and it's our final authority. And and my concern is that sometimes we get a very superficial understanding of what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. In other words, we've really never read the Bible. We just went to the theater and watched the Left Behind movie, and so now we know what the Bible says, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and that may not be the case. Right. So um, I'm. I have one foot in in the biblical 
world, I think in the other foot in the real world of, of so what? What mm -hmm. difference does all this make? Well, in your lens, uh, I, I reviewed this uh, Methodist Doctrinal Distinctives document you sent me a, a little bit ago, and something that I think will please people to know about you, you talk about um, biblical authority, and under this section called infallibility, here, here's the language, the purpose mm -hmm. of inspiration, that's biblical inspiration, is to ensure infallibility. It is impossible for God to lie. That's a citation from Titus 1-2. If God communicated truth through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and if the prophets and apostles got it down right, then Scripture is authoritative because it is the capital W Word of God. Infallibility means that Scripture is incapable of deception or leading astray. The Scriptures cannot be infallible unless they are without error. However, some theologians now affirm infallibility but deny inerrancy. The doctrine, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy means that the human authors accurately recorded what God conveyed to them. If they got it wrong, then the Holy Spirit failed in the process of inspiration. Yes. Wesley understood what was at stake when he wrote, quote, "'Nay, if there be any mistakes in the Bible, there be, may as well be a thousand. If there be one falsehood in that book, it did not come from God, the God of truth.'" He wrote that his, he wrote that his foundation is the Bible. He said, he followed it in all things, both great and small. He cautioned, believe nothing they say unless it is clearly confirmed by plain passages of holy writing. I always loved that he called himself a Bible bigot. But here you <laughs> you uh, defend not just biblical infallibility, but biblical inerrancy. So as people are listening to you, you're not some loosey-goosey theologian that, that yeah, what, this is what's in the Bible, but we believe this other thing anyway. No, the Bible is is the capital W Word of God. It is infallible. Yeah. It is inerrant. It is the only rule for our, our way of life. I appreciated the strong language there, and I've been eager to hear how it is that that one can take the Bible seriously as the Word of God and come to the conclusion that the modern-day nation-state of Israel is not at all connected to the prophecies in the Old and New Testaments foretold about Israel. So um, perhaps you could start broad and we can get particular. Um, mm -hmm. I, I watched a bunch of videos yesterday and today on um, dispensationalism versus covenant theology. That conversation has happened most robustly as I've seen it in the Reformed tradition, at least that's what's online. Um, but it seems to me that covenant theology actually comes as a response to dispensationalism, but we're talking about a biblical worldview that was before dispensationalism. It was with John Wesley and, and the, the people called Methodist. Uh, there, were, there were very many who were apocalyptically minded, but just because you're apocalyptically minded doesn't mean you're dispensationalist. So how, how, how would people just now diving into this rightly understand the waters we're swimming in here? Okay. Um, yes, I believe that the Bible is infallible, mm -hmm. but... Um, the work of the Holy Spirit does does not necessarily extend to making me infallible right. or to making you infallible. Absolutely. And so the the waters get muddy at the level of interpretation, and there there must be objective ways that the Bible is interpreted. Otherwise, we run the risk of already formulating what we think we want the Bible to say or what we think it does say and then reading into it uh, our own presuppositions. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's the point where where things begin to get uh, murky. 
And so I want to start with what I think the Bible is very clear about concerning eschatology. And eschatos is the Greek word for last or last things or last days. So we're not trying to speak over anyone's head there. But there are five essential doctrines that I think the Bible is critically clear about Mm -hmm. and that we dare not fudge on concerning the the end of time. Mm -hmm. And first of all, that is that Jesus Christ will literally return a second time. We're almost into Advent season, and Mm -hmm. the word Advent means that he came. But we also believe in the second Advent, Mm -hmm. that Christ will be coming again. Mm -hmm. And so we may differ over when or how things will shape up prior to his coming. Mm -hmm. And most of the arguments um, occur over the details. But we don't want to mislead people. Every Bible-believing teacher or theologian affirms the second advent, Mm -hmm. which would be followed by resurrection, and that is the physical resurrection of the body and the judgment. When you say it's followed by, do you mean chronologically, or do you mean that this is the, the second theological conviction that follows the first one? It's more logical. Uh, in other words, the the second advent yeah. will be a complex set of events. Certain things will happen almost simultaneously. Uh, Christ will appear. The, um, the dead will raise. Okay. Those who are alive will go out to meet him. Those are all components. You're, and sometimes you're taking get, from 1 Thessalonians there. You're taking language from 1 Corinthians there. There's explicit yeah. biblical language that you're using here. Very good. Okay, go on. And so we'll all stand before Christ mm-hmm. as the judge, mm-hmm. and we will either be consigned to an eternal heaven or an eternal hell. And and we can't fudge on any of those issues without without compromising what God's Word says. Very good. But then, so, so that's the basic um, concepts that, that we do affirm. And people say, well, it's air, no, no theologian agrees with anyone else, and so it's so convoluted, uh, I can't understand it. Well, it's because we approach this doctrine with certain assumptions that we've already formed. And it's no, there's, there's no uh, doubt why Revelation is the last book of the Bible. You need to have some working knowledge of the first 65 in order to understand 66. Mm-hmm. But see, the average person wants to take a shortcut. And they say, well, I'm not interested in all that other stuff. I just want to know who the next president's going to be. And I think it's embedded or encoded somewhere in here. And so that's where we, we start getting into trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, systematic theology, which may not be a real exciting term to some people, mm-hmm. but it means logic. There's a logical sequence, if this, then that. Mm-hmm. And um, if we make wrong conclusions prior to eschatology, it's going to create a divergence when we work out the implications of other doctrines. Mm-hmm. So the great divide that we're talking about here, and we've got to define covenant and dispensation here in a moment, but the great divide is, what, de- what determinations we've already made 
prior to even coming to this discipline. And, and most of the arguments are over assumptions worked out. Mm-hmm. And it's it, we have to retrace our steps and see where you took the left path and I took the right, right. so to speak. Yeah. And, and that takes a certain amount of discipline and quite a bit of time. It also involves for us being willing to unlearn certain things. Now, I'm not willing to go back and, and, and discuss whether the Bible is from God or not. I've mm-hmm. already settled that in my mind. Uh-huh. But some of the things I have been taught across my life, I have to open them to uh, better interpretation. Uh-huh. I have to be willing. And that, that makes people uh, insecure. Well, uh, then are you saying we're not sure about it? You know, we're sure about God's word. Mm-hmm. We're sure there's a God. We're sure he's in control. We're sure he's working things out. But it's the details. It's the time that um, we may not be 100% right. And what's interesting is in, in the first advent, mm-hmm. the experts were all wrong, weren't they? I mean, the learned people, the academic crowd um, in Jerusalem at that time never even bothered to make a trip to Bethlehem mm-hmm. at the first advent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were all invested in their own theology, and, and this Jesus being born in a manger mm-hmm. didn't fit their prior assumptions. And so if the, if the experts could be wrong, on Christ's first coming, it's possible that, that we could be wrong about some of the details of his second coming. Absolutely. But the fact is, he is coming again. Mm-hmm. And that's not open for debate unless we just discount Scripture authority altogether. Well, the place where this gets very real is when we're looking at modern geopolitical situations in, in the Middle East, and whether or not there should be a people that identify with Israel or with mm-hmm. the covenant established at Mount Sinai, and whether or not that identity is worth the bloodshed that is now being seen or will continue to be seen in coming years if mm-hmm. the Jews do not abandon what some see as an illegitimate identity at this point. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's out of protection of that identity that the modern nation state has been established and that, that Zionists have continued to advance that agenda, which it, it seems that many... Christians do not acknowledge as legitimate and that um, they are wrong to continue to uh, promote or protect because um, the language that I've heard used is that the the church is now Israel. There is no Jewish people. There is no uh, the, 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 the new covenant of Christ Jesus uh, displaced the covenant established through Moses at Mount Sinai. And so whenever we're looking at that kind of language being used, it's hard to be dispassionate about, you know, where we get some of the details wrong, but, but we're, we're in agreement on the fundamentals of what's going to happen. Um, and, and it also ties in somewhat directly to an apocalyptic mindset. With, with what level of intensity and expectation are we navigating our way through the world on a daily basis? Do we identify as people living in the end times or is is every day today exactly like a, a day a thousand years ago? So um, this is one of those things where I do think it's important to say, as you've said, um, none of us sees the future. I mean, Jesus himself was very clear that even he didn't know the times and comings 
of, of the final thing. But we have been told some things in Revelation, which you take very seriously, in, in God's Revelation, not just in the book Revelation. Mm-hmm. So how do we—you've uh, you, already said that we need to define covenant, we need to define dispensationalism, but you've also said that the way that we interpret Revelation depends on presuppositions that we carry into it, theological convictions that we carry into it. And so um, I, I, I guess I would like you— Okay, so if you could talk about the presuppositions that we bring into it that that lead us in different directions, okay. that would be great. And then I want to try and define covenant and dispensationalism and see okay. what you would correct in my definition. So yes. go ahead. Hey, let's, let's just start with this word apocalypse. Yeah. You know, that's the first word in the Greek text mm-hmm. of the book of Revelation. And it means an unveiling mm-hmm. or a disclosure or a revelation. And it is the revelation or disclosure of Jesus Christ in his full deity as well as humanity. In his first advent, we saw him in his humanity, Mm -hmm. and we saw glimpses of deity, supernatural things happening, but most people could have bumped shoulders with Jesus on a Galilean street and never known right. that they had touched God. Mm-hmm. But um, the apocalypse means when he comes the second time, mm-hmm. every eye will see, every knee will bow, every mm-hmm. tongue will confess. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, Jeffrey, that um, the word apocalypse has has come to have a, a, a non-biblical meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and it means, uh, uh, apparently, if you go to see an apocalyptic movie, everything's going to get blown up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's scary and it's frightening. And um, it's, it's the sky is falling kind of a thing. Yeah. And so people transfer that misunderstanding to the Bible. And regularly I heard people in my congregation say, I'm afraid to read the book of revelation. Mm -hmm. It's too scary, Mm. but it was written for our encouragement. Right. It was written to give us hope. So somehow we're missing the message because of our own assumptions. Now, so so that's just a, a starting point. Um, and, and I think it's good for us to define all of the terms that we're using. Now, uh, if I just jump ahead to um, covenant and dispensation, mm-hmm. you know, both words are in the Bible. Yes. And... Um, dispensational uh, leaders or authorities can speak of covenants. And, and, and so we have to define the, the theological assumptions mm-hmm. that are, that are made by these terms. Uh, essentially Schofield in his famous reference Bible said a dispensation was a period of time during which man is tested in respect to his obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. And, and what is implied in that kind of a, uh, a distinction here is that there is a discontinuity from one dispensation to the next. Some uh, have maybe two or three dispensations. Some are found, have found seven or eight dispensations. Mm-hmm. And there is a troubling fact that this seems to be a little bit arbitrary. But according to the Schofield Reference Bible, we had the dispensation of innocence, of conscience, 
of government, of promise, of law, of church, and of kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, the yes, we can find those places in the Bible, but is there an emphasis on one aspect to the exclusion of the other? Yeah. Covenant theology tends to see more of the continuity. In other words, I would make this statement just as an explanation. Um, We have always been under God's law, Mm -hmm. but we've also always been under God's grace. So how can we distinguish between a specific period of time that is emphasizing law, and now we say, but we're not under law, we're under grace? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that can be very misleading. We've always been under God's law. We've always been under God's grace. And so the basic difference is, do we try to compartmentalize Scripture, or do we see Scripture more in a holistic way? Now, the the word dispensation, when it's used in Scripture, does not have anything to do with a period of time, but it has to do with God's administration, um, or it's really literally a compound word that means house law. It's, it's oikonomia, right? Right. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. where so, we get so economy, but also how do household you manage your home? Yeah. And and of course, then how does God manage the whole earth, and what is His plan? Yes. So really, dispensationalism then is sort of famous for the charts, you know, that extend from one side of the church to the other, and we see what God did here. But see, the assumption is that every dispensation ends in failure. And that's the pessimistic side. And honestly, I don't care what you call yourself as far as a a bumper sticker label. Uh What I want to encourage you with is that the Bible offers hope. Uh And and the, the typical dispensational teaching would say, that because Israel rejected its king, God put plan A on hold and moved to plan B. Plan B is the church. And then when he's through with the church, and actually the church will end in failure and apostasy. Uh, and, and see, I want to just stop and say that's that's the biggest problem I have is if we assume that's where we're going. Mm-hmm then we don't push back against it. Yeah, I don't think that we have to be in an era of apostasy, even if we are. Let me, it's not predestined. Let me, let me clarify. The, the, when you're saying that this is what has been foretold, this has not been foretold by the Bible, but this is, these are additional prophecies put on biblical prophecy by the Schofield Reference Bible and people that were a part of that movement? That's right. Okay. Um, and so dispensationalism began with John Darby, yeah. but it was imported to America, primarily made popular through the Schofield Reference Bible. Well, let's let's stop so, right there because uh, so one of the things I looked into is so I I was going back and forth with somebody recently, and I was telling him my interpretation of Romans eleven, my understanding mm-hmm. that the Jewish people have persisted; their covenant is still in effect. Mm-hmm. And he said that's dispensationalism that hasn't been around but for 150 years. And I had a hard time believing that, you know, my instantly my alarm bell goes off. You know, it's like liberals saying that uh, the doctrine of the fall wasn't invented until St. Augustine talked about it, which is patently false. So I I read a little bit last night and found 
that uh, Justin Martyr talked about there being dispensations. Irenaeus talked about yes. it. I mean, this is something going way back. So it mm-hmm. seems to me that there is an understanding of how covenants work, a covenant just mm-hmm. being uh, God having spoken directly to either an individual like Abraham or David or a whole covenant people mm-hmm. like uh, Israel or the church, but that the, uh, uh, God lays out what the deal is going to be, how they're going to work together. Mm-hmm. And there might be certain principles governing those things that hold fast throughout, but each dispensation is different. Uh, there's there's continuity, but there's also difference. That's that's mm-hmm. how I would look at it. Yeah. And uh, I I don't at all ascribe to. I mean, I'm very clear. Darby and Schofield and these, of course, were mm-hmm. culturally conditioned and put a lot of things on that yeah. I I wouldn't want there. But also, I don't like throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying, okay. well, because crazy uh-huh. people believe in dispensations, I go the opposite way. I just kind of think, okay, well, I have to allow for the fact that there are still Jews, their covenant is still in effect, based mm-hmm. on my reading of not just Revelation, but uh, Romans and Galatians. Um, but there are a lot of things that people put on that, like a pre-tribulation yeah. rapture. I just recently mm-hmm. learned, you know, the a lot of people don't want to suffer, so they believe that Christ will come and take us to heaven, and that's when the tribulation will happen. I don't mm-hmm. see that in Revelation. I see Revelation preparing us for a time of great suffering and tribulation, mm-hmm. uh, but also saying that the heads of the elect will be marked by God so that a lot of these things don't don't fall upon them. But I, as I hear people pushing back against this kind of, what, you, what I think I heard you say, this non-biblical understanding of apocalypticism, you know, the world's going to end, all this bad stuff mm-hmm. is going to happen— I often wonder if you tell me this. In the 20th century, modernism really took over the church, which was the notion that we're going to build the kingdom. the The church mm-hmm. is going to to bring about the perfect shalom, and if Christ returns bodily, it'll be to uh, mm-hmm. us having done the work, maybe through the power of His Holy Spirit. Um, mm-hmm. That seems very different to me from what I read in the scriptures, which is is covered in supernaturalism. Um, and and miracles and and stadiums of blood, you know, that's the sort of stuff yeah. that people read, and it makes them very uncomfortable. And the suspicion that people like me have is, well, there's a lot of people that are just uncomfortable with violence and suffering and crazy people, and so they just throw all that out and say, God's going to do it how He's going to do it. Mm-hmm. So how much how much so, distance is there? Yeah, go ahead. And so typically the the old joke. Mm-hmm. that is kind of overused is I'm a pan millennialist. You know, everything's going to pan out. Well, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> yes, at a practical level, that's how we function. We mm-hmm. know God's in control. Everything's going to work out, mm-hmm. but really that's almost an agnostic view. Right. Yeah. That um, I, I don't even know what the Bible says. Well, at least the leaders and teachers in the church ought to have some working understanding of what the Bible says. Yes. Now, I'm not interested in proving dispensationalists wrong. Yeah. Um, and actually, they've gone through a sort of metamorphosis. There is progressive dispensationalism today, which is kind of a, an attempt to reboot and acknowledge some of the things that the other side say. So I think in the best sense of the word, that is iron sharpens iron, mm-hmm. as as one side actually lovingly confronts the other side and vice versa, we are helping each other. In the worst case scenario, though, is the world just hears us argue yeah. and says, well, 
So, so we've got to be careful. Um, the, the fundamentalist movement was not originally, the classic fundamentalist movement was not necessarily dispensational, but it's, it eventually became that. Mm-hmm. And the dispensationalists were those who were affirming the authority of Scripture against the liberals who yeah. were denied. Yeah. Yeah. So we find ourselves on on their side, mm-hmm. except when it comes to how we interpret Scripture. Mm-hmm. And then we find that uh, we can't accept certain assumptions. Now, and the, I'll get to one in a minute. Yeah, great. But concerning modernism, modernism would believe that the, modernism is sort of a secular post-millennialism. Mm-hmm. It's that the kingdom will come, but it will not come because of revival or the supernatural. It will come as we educate ourselves, as we evolve, as we lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. That was the liberal uh, residual of the old Methodist view um, that that Christ's kingdom would come. They believed that they that they were the instruments mm-hmm. of revival that would bring in the millennium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what kept Francis Asbury on his horse is he, he believed he, but, but it was not that we're going to pass legislation right. or, or we're going to pass a bill or we're going to get Washington DC to, um, to set up a committee to study this. Mm-hmm. And the elites will tell us, uh, how we can make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a secularization of, of this old dream that that actually as as the church does its job, it will bring um, it, 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 it will bring peace and and the kingdom of God into this world. right See it has to happen in the individual. The king you you and I have to come into the kingdom. And we come in as we're born again, mm-hmm. but we never think of it at the corporate level. What, what will the kingdom look like corporately? See, I'm in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. You've been born into the kingdom, but we never think about it corporately. Liberalism has taught a corporate view of the kingdom, but never taught the necessity for us as individuals to be born into the kingdom. Well, so I, the way I've, I've, even in evangelical GMC circles, I'm uncomfortable mm-hmm. with language of we're building the kingdom. I, I I think that it's God who builds the kingdom, and then it's for us to be channels oh. of his peace in the world. But it, it seems to me that that Americans in particular, but Christians broadly, want to feel like perhaps we're more instrumental and active than we are in what I would consider an otherworldly supernatural activity of God in the world. And so I— Well, let me just— go ahead. Let me just push back there just a little Please, bit. Yeah. Um, you see, the the historic premillennial view, mm-hmm. and just to be clear, not all premillennialists are dispensational, but all dispensationalists are premillennial. So we we've got a bigger category and a smaller subset. That's well, all I'm trying to be. Remember your point. You got to define millennium for people who uh, are with us, and uh-huh. we haven't defined that yet. So go ahead. Well, they would believe that the kingdom or the millennium, the kingdom then, um, which would uh, exist over a thousand years, 
And see, that language is in Revelation 20 and in nowhere else. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, is that to be taken literally or is that to be taken symbolically? And here is one of the big interpretive issues. And it's real easy to say to our opponents, you don't believe the Bible unless you interpret it like I do. Yeah. No, that's not that's not a valid assumption. Mm -hmm. But uh, essentially, for the premillennial viewpoint, um, the kingdom starts with the second advent, with Christ's return. Yes. But when here is one of the most important questions we need to ask, when does the kingdom of Christ begin? Yes. And, and I believe that um, we can show biblically that it began at his first coming. He did come to establish his kingdom. Uh -huh. I'll just give you two, two arguments here. In the book of Daniel, you remember there was the Babylonian Empire, uh -huh. the Medes and Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, and then the kingdom of God comes. Uh -huh. And so um, the kingdom of God came when Christ came to establish it here on earth. Uh -huh. And the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was actually the verification that Christ had indeed ascended back to heaven uh -huh. and was seated on his throne. So he, he is king. Uh -huh. He is ruling. Yes. But his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom in which he rules over those who are subject to him. Uh -huh. Now, he still maintains authority over the rest of the world that's even in rebellion against him. Uh -huh. But um, so we have to talk about what does the kingdom look like? Well, let, for me, dispensation. let me read let out me of the Bible. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll remember for, for the, for the dispensationalists, the kingdom of God would be um, a Jewish kingdom in which Jesus physically sits on a throne in Jerusalem. Uh -huh. You see, the church will already be raptured out at this point. Yeah. And you 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 brought in all of these things dovetail together, but the, for dispensationalism, the rapture is to is to close Plan B and revert back to Plan A. Mm. And so John Walford, a, a leading dispensationalist, and I, this is a direct quote, says, "It is therefore not too much to say that the rapture question." is determined more by ecclesiology, that is our doctrine of the church, than it is by eschatology. And, and what he's really saying here is dispensationalism maintains that Israel and the church have to be kept separate. God has two working plans. Mm -hmm. The other view, which which we alluded to and then uh, moved, moved past, mm -hmm. is, is that... Um, no, God is not through with Israel, uh -huh. but they have been cut off in Romans 11. Yes. They will be grafted back in. Yes. But they will not be grafted in based on their racial identity because race no matter, it no longer is an issue. They will be grafted in by their faith in Jesus Christ, and they will be grafted into the church. Okay. So I'll, I'll remember to come back there. Let's, okay. um, we need, we're, we're talking about a lot of things that are in the Bible. Uh -huh. We've talked about dispensationalism, yes. friends paying attention. If you, if you still don't have a clear picture of what dispensationalism is, 
there are two different ways in which it can be understood. One is broadly an understanding that there are many covenants established in the biblical witness, none of which cancels out the ones before, but God maintains them uh, under certain conditions that he establishes in the beginning. So there was a covenant with Noah, there's one with David, there's one with Abraham, there's one on Mount Sinai with the Jews, there's a new covenant with Christ Jesus, there might be one or two more depending on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. There's a second sense that dispensationalism is used, which is married to the 19th century American context, uh, a very mm -hmm. apocalyptic, uh, formulaic, systematized view where uh, Mr. Reasoner has been talking about uh, the church being raptured into heaven and in seven years of, of God going back to plan A, which is the Jews and having a king on the throne in Jerusalem, that all corresponds in some sense to Scripture, but there are people like me who would consider myself a dispensationalist where I believe that multiple covenants have been made that are currently in effect, but I don't adopt a Darby-Schofield formulaic approach to these things. I still allow for there to be a lot of mystery. The The other term that, that needs to be understood is the millennial reign or the millennium. You, you said rightly it comes from Revelation 20, but I just want to, I want people to hear this because I'm going to talk about uh, after this, the role of Satan and the role of the church. This is chapter mm -hmm. 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless piss and, <laughs> pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into a bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Um, and then there's there's uh, Satan is loosed, and there's a final battle after which uh, all the dead are raised imperishable, everyone judged for eternity, new heaven and new earth, um, uh, the rest is history, as they say. So I, I was listening to a Reformed preacher named Keith Bosky that I like a lot, and he argued that we are currently in the millennial reign right now, and Satan has already been bound, and that's actually been the case since Christ came in the flesh, that Satan was bound right then— and he has not been deceiving the nations, and we are living in Christ's millennial kingdom right now. Is that is that the view that John Wesley had? Is that the view? Uh, how 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 do Wesleyans, Methodists, ideally feel about the millennial reign? If it if it's not a literal reign with Christ on a throne in Jerusalem, mm -hmm. then what is it? Okay, the literal reign, which would be literally a thousand years yes. in Jerusalem with Christ physically present, that is the premillennial view. Yes. Now, um, premillennial just means it hasn't happened yet. Well, it which means is self -evident. that Christ, Christ must return yes. before this kingdom is inaugurated. But the realized eschatology, that's a term that's often used. The realized eschatology says that basically the kingdom of Christ has already invaded this world. Mm -hmm. And so there is still a, a battle going uh, to say that Satan is bound. Uh, is, you know, we look around and we see all the evil. 
But you see, there would still be evil if Satan was no longer alive Mm -hmm. because of the sin in our heart. Mm -hmm. I think we have to understand these terms, what is being conveyed here. Mm -hmm. Um, When we enter the kingdom of God, when we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, Satan is bound in my life. And I, God gives me, this is salvation. This is entire sanctification put in eschatological terms. Satan is bound so that now for the first time, I'm not, I'm not bound by sin and by the habits of sin. I can be delivered. And so as the kingdom of God expands one conversion at a time, what social implications does that have? In other words, if you have a Christian family, you stand out as a light in a dark place Mm -hmm. because your whole family is showing that other kingdom. Can an entire congregation reflect that? Mm -hmm. And, And you see, could it cover the whole world? Well, um, Yes, and and Wesley even even alludes to that. Behold a Christian world, mm-hmm. um, and so I would say that every every Methodist theologian, and I have surveyed over a hundred and fifty year period. Um, I surveyed over forty Methodist systematic theologies. All were post millennial. None were pre millennial. And so they believed that progressively the kingdom of God was pushing out the kingdom of darkness. Hmm. Um, and, and so this, this is at the most basic level. This, this would be a good time to ask the so what question. It oh, means it has we, huge have implications. Hope. Yeah. we have hope that the church, when it is pure, when its power is unleashed, how do we bind Satan through the preaching of the gospel, uh-huh. through through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Um, and we have seen that in revival periods where that's almost been a foretaste of what I think can happen universally. It hasn't happened yet. And so what if I'm wrong? Uh-huh. And what if in the process I'm working to preach the gospel and see people delivered from sin, and Jesus comes and says, well, you had it all wrong in eschatology, mm-hmm. but I was still being a faithful servant. What if we don't believe we can do much good in this world till Christ comes, mm-hmm. and we and we just relax and let down our guard? Mm-hmm. Well, you see, here is this issue of inconsistencies there are people who have a very negative view of the future but still have enough of love for jesus they're advancing his kingdom even though they don't believe it can be advanced and so there's this disconnect between what we believe in our head and what we do in our heart so um pre-millennialists send out missionaries to convert the world even though they don't believe the world will ever be converted um but the post-millennial view gives us hope that what Christ launched at his first advent will will never be will never come to an end. 
So there's there's your particular view as an individual. Then there is you mm-hmm. being able to broadly characterize Methodist uh, worldview yes. eschatology, and and I want to be exact on this. Okay. When when we're talking about not your personal, but the the broad mm-hmm. Methodist worldview mm-hmm. es- eschatology, I think I hear you saying it's uniformly post millennial. It was until until Methodism abandoned its own heritage and became liberal. And you see, by becoming liberal, what do we mean by being a liberal? Well, we deny the supernatural. So liberalism believes that we can better ourselves through our own human effort. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean, is that as we move into the 20th century and Methodist theologians were abandoning their own heritage, they still carried this vestige of post-millennialism, and that's what I call secular post-millennialism. Now they believe that we can make the world a better place by passing a resolution. Yeah in Congress. Um, well, so, okay, let me let me tie this to a larger theological thing that I'm okay. concerned with in Methodism, and that is the notion that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit will always result in church growth. This is something I'm, I'm seeing around every corner, every gathering mm-hmm. in the GMC. It is this fundamental mm-hmm. theological conviction that if we are doing things right, then we're going to see churches grow. And I, I've seen that as an outgrowth of some kind of prosperity gospel and, and yeah. a kind of magic where it's just like if you check this box, this box, this box, then you will always see growth. There's a formula. And uh, what I hear you correcting is an opposite of that, which is mm-hmm. even you know w- when we're faithful, the world is going to go down the tubes. And I think the the authentic Christian disposition is a complete lack of concern about if there's growth or destruction. There's only this concern about, am I being faithful? And then as as long as I'm walking in the Spirit, everything might fail, but God is going to be pleased. Or everything yeah. might succeed, but that doesn't necessarily mean God is pleased. I just have to be faithful. That's my one concern. And so it seems to me that we, as I hear you talking, I hear a lot of critique of some kind of wacky beliefs and some things that people have put on to uh, fundamental doctrines, but I'm not hearing what's fundamentally wrong with the notion that that God— not. Uh, so I hear you critiquing, okay, God's plan is the church, but then he's going to take away the church and then back to plan A. But uh, mm-hmm. my understanding has been the Jews are part of God's plan and the church is part, yes. of, part of God's plan, and he's advancing mm-hmm. both, but they are not the same. And that's that's how I read the language about grafting back in. Yeah. I don't know what you're grafting back in if there is no thing to graft back in. That's what I hear in the language about it, all Israel eventually being saved in Romans eleven twenty five. Yeah. It's it's very clear to me that the people's being maintained, the people being defined not by genetics but by a covenant yeah. relationship with God. That's right. And yeah. so, but that covenant's different from the Christian covenant. It's not opposite. It's just different. And so I'm not hearing yet what is fundamentally wrong with that, that John Wesley in particular, or the first generation of Methodists would find problematic. Is there something about that theological basic conviction that is not Methodist? um, All of the early Methodist writers would freely refer to the church as the new Israel of God. Mm -hmm. And, And there are some passages 
like at the end of Romans 2, mm-hmm. where what it means to be Jewish yeah. or to be the chosen people, I think is being brought. Oh, yes. And, and, well, we're and so the true children of Abraham. Where, we're, yeah, there's a lot of that language there, but dispensationalists uh-huh. don't see that as the Jews are no more. It's rather mm-hmm. that we are we are adopted into God's family. We can cry, Abba, Father. We have the testimony mm-hmm. of the Spirit. We, mm-hmm. We've been adopted in, but that does but not displace. The, but are we in the same family as, as a believing Jew then? Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, sort of, so, we have the same father, but that doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm a biological child. The Jews are the biological yeah. children. We are the adopted children. Yeah. I think the New Testament says biology no longer matters. That in in Romans four, the children or the seed of Abraham are those by faith, mm-hmm. by faith in Jesus Christ, and so this I think comes to the fundamental um, distinction. Dispensationalists, if they if they were forced to abandon every assumption but one, mm-hmm. the thing that defines them according to themselves is that Jew and Christian or God's plan for Israel and the church must be maintained separately. And and I think what's happening is God has one plan that is big enough to incorporate both biological Jew and biological Gentile. And I think that's what God intended with his Abrahamic covenant to begin with, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so, you see, how does this matter? Well, then, the superiority is not because of Jewish race, um, but God actually has a plan for all peoples. And we're not saying that God has abandoned Israel, but on the other hand, we don't want to say that we must unconditionally, 100%, support the political nation of Israel to the exclusion of the Christian Palestinians. They too, God has a plan. God, God made promises to Haggai as well, and God intended for them to be a great nation. And so, it's no longer a matter of our ethnic identity. It's a matter that election. Now, see, Jesus Christ is the elect one, and the elect then are all who are in Christ, who are believing in Christ. And it makes no difference whether ethnicity, we are Jew or Gentile. Well, so this is, there's so much here that I feel like gets spoken. As a dispensationalist, I can easily acknowledge there's probably no unique gene to the Jews that you look across all the Jews. And you, I've understood Jews to be people who are bound not by uh, a genetic marker but by a spiritual heritage, which is the covenant with God established at Sinai, having come under that covenant. That's what establishes a Jew. And the the modern nation state of Israel, though on paper is an atheist nation, Mm -hmm. has Mm -hmm. been by the Zionists promoted as a safe haven for Jews around the world who've been persecuted throughout history. Uh, For why, if not because the world hates people of God, you know? So mm-hmm. so what's at stake here, one is there is a lot of bloodshed going on right now that's either legitimate and we need to minister in the context of or completely 
illegitimate, and we need to tell the Jews to get out of there because they have no claim on the land and they got to get out of there because they're not even Jews because they can't be Jews. The, the, the Jews are over. So that's the, the very real implications. But then there's also the implications of, oh, well, say what you were going to say, and I'll remember it. Well, I think, I think, Jeffrey, that we want to avoid creating what's called a false dichotomy. Okay. It's either this or either that. Okay. Um, yes, God has a plan for Israel, but he is more interested in them coming to Christ than, than any other part of the plan. But everything I hold to, still, I can allow. When you read the Old Testament prophets, mm-hmm. God God names these countries and these ethnic groups that we've never heard of today. Mm-hmm. But God had a plan for them. Mm-hmm. Yes, God has a plan for Israel, but He also has a plan for the Arab. He also has a plan for for Americans, for people all over the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't want to create this predestination mentality that that if you belong to a certain ethnicity that you're somehow special god's do you agree that that was the situation until christ came do you agree that the jews were but then once christ came the jews stopped being special in that way yes okay okay i think i think that's a fair way to say i think they really failed to do what god intended them to do Mm -hmm. through the abrahamic covenant Mm -hmm. they were never evangelistic except for jonah Mm -hmm. he's the the one great exception and so the jews never did do what god intended them to do but uh, god god has expanded um his chosen people to include all who are believing in Christ, mm-hmm. and the good news is, is that Israel will eventually come in to that identity. Yeah, I wanted to read connection. John Wesley's. Uh, he he actually remarks on that in his notes on the New Testament, and okay. it's just very interesting. But 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 before I did that, I wanted to to sum up what I hear you saying, which is there's like a De- Deuteronomy 32 worldview that God has established um, all the nations in the earth, mm-hmm. and and that He is the God of history and in control of all of them. In the Old Testament setup, Israel is the one nation that he adopted for his own that mm-hmm. then he would empower to serve as a priestly nation to the other mm-hmm. nations, an intercessor nation to bring shalom to the world. And mm-hmm. so what I hear you saying is that you've equi- made that equivalent with making more Jews an evangelistic mission. I've, I've understood it more to be a priestly nation that that reconciles a, a worldly god with the heavenly or world well I, I don't know that we're saying anything different there. okay i okay. think i think well you, and i wasn't you're... i wasn't going to make a big mountain out of a mole here hill there i'm just saying like yeah. when we're determining you know, i would agree that they failed to be a priestly nation for yeah. sure uh, come as intercessors sure. but even we're, so we're speaking a little bit off the cuff and i i think i would yeah. like your language better than mine so i'm going to steal it oh okay very good <laughs> so so the one of the dispensationalists i was listening to today yesterday said Clearly, the Jews were unfaithful, but that doesn't end the covenant that God made with them. It it, it ends the okay. the promise that God made that they would occupy the land while they were faithless. Yeah. But if they but yeah. repent and come back, then God will be faithful again. And there's a lot of biblical language about that. Sure. And so, but see this this assumes, Jeffrey. Yes, sir. Um, it, it assumes that covenants are unconditional, and that God will keep His promise even if we fail our our end. Yeah. And if and here's here's the Armenian view yeah. 
and it's not right or wrong. I'm just putting the correct label on it. Good. Yeah. Um, Wes, Wesley and all true Arminians would believe by inductive Bible study mm-hmm. that every covenant is conditional. There's always a, a stipulation. There's no such thing as an unconditional covenant. That's right. Huh. So I and, and you see that radically changes three things. And I'm trying to ask, answer the so what question. See, first of all, can I forfeit my personal salvation? If my covenant with God is unconditional, some of our brothers and sisters on the other side of the fence say, you know, you're still saved even if you deny God, because he'll keep his covenant even if we break ours. That's, uh, I, I got to stop you though, because it's, it's, it's so the every covenant is different. It has different stipulations. If you do this, I will do this. Yeah. But there is but no they, if you fail to do this, then this is off the table forever. You know, so there's as long as I repent and receive mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit and walk faithfully with Christ, there is nothing that can ever undo the covenant that Christ has made with me. There is nothing that can take me from his hand if I meet the conditions but, set. And so to say that the Jewish covenant can be canceled when they're unfaithful is like saying mm-hmm. that I can never be right with Jesus again if I sin. There is no repentance. There is no renewal of covenant, which is patently false. Yeah. No, no. but what we're saying is, and I think you've agreed, mm-hmm. that every covenant has conditions. Absolutely, yes. And and so it's the, the, the true question would be, can I become apostate? Apostate yes. really is used sometimes for divorce in Bible in the Bible. Sure. So can I become apostate and still um, trust in the unconditional covenant that I am eternally secure if even if I don't continue to believe? No. Well, this divides. Okay. Yeah. So no. let's take it to the second thing. Yeah. Um, is is marriage breakable? See, there are those who taught that if you make a marriage covenant mm-hmm. and your partner is unfaithful, you still have to keep the vows even if your partner is um, unfaithful. Mm-hmm. But I think Jesus allows for divorce. Yeah. That, again, is a conditional covenant. But it's the only condition. Yeah. So uh, I, someone like me would just say, in every covenant, God establishes what it means to be on the right side of that covenant right. and the wrong side of that covenant, but there's never anything that abolishes that covenant. Well, it can be broken. Yeah. The covenant is negated. So would so, you say then that the Mosaic covenant is still in effect, but there's just nobody that, that can faithfully adhere to it? Well, I think we're under the new covenant now, which is an expansion of 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 basically all of those previous covenants but but the the mosaic covenant as it stands god the the deal that god made on mount sinai that one's no longer in effect you see we we believe the 10 commandments are are moral characteristics yeah. that reflect the nature of god yes but then following from that is mm-hmm. case law yes. that was was specific only to that culture we're not under case law 
yeah, necessarily. John Wesley made the distinction between moral law and ceremonial or ritual That's law. Right. And then I've uh, in the document you gave me, there was a, a third uh, yeah. area as well. The, those Pro- categories make sense logically, but yeah. they're not lined out explicitly in Scripture. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. I mean, the Trinity isn't explicitly in Scripture either. Well, so. I think I think there are places even in Acts where um, the church is released from certain dietary law. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's explicitly and, canceled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So but, I, I hear you. Let's let's dip into John Wesley's fun language real quick, and then okay. let's let's pick back up where we were. I just think it'll be good to to right. um, whet our appetite. So this is in uh, chapter eleven, verse twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He's talking about the Jews there. Mm-hmm. I thought this sure. was nuts. Um, mm-hmm. How much more their, their fullness? That's their full conversion. So this taps into what you were saying, mm-hmm. that salvation for yeah. the Jews will come in their conversion to Christianity. Mm-hmm. So many prophecies refer to this grand event that it is surprising any Christian can doubt it. And there are greatly confirmed, these are greatly confirmed by the wonderful preservation of the Jews as a distinct people to this day. Mm. When it is accomplished, it will be so strong a demonstration both of the Old and New Testament revelation, as will doubtless convince many thousand deists in countries nominally Christian, of whom there will, of course, be increasing multitudes among nearly nominal Christians. And this will be a means of swiftly propagating the gospel among the Mohammedans, the, the Muslims, and pagans who would probably have received it long ago had they conversed only with real Christians. So John Wesley foresaw, uh, in verse 25, it says that there was a mystery that the Jews' hearts have been hardened to Christianity so that the fullness Mm -hmm. of the Gentiles can come in. But the nation, the full full nation of uh, Israel, all the Jews will be saved eventually when they all have their hearts unhardened and they come to Christ. And so there's a question of... Um, when I was saying this to this other guy, he said that's fully dispensationalist. But there's there's always classically been an understanding that Jesus, whenever he uh, broke out of the realm of the dead to be resurrected, that he also broke out the righteous Jews that had been there before Christ was even born. There's this notion that Jews might be able to love Christ by loving the law, even if they don't know his name, still be saved sure. by him. And then when finally he is revealed... At the end of time, they'll re- receive him. Um, mm-hmm. All that is so interesting to me, and I love that John Wesley yeah. talked about this. I, I want to ask you yeah. about—I uh, heard he believed in two millennial reigns, but the the thing before that I think is important to say is I don't know anybody—okay, there are some who say no matter what Israel today does, it's right. We uh-huh. can't question it. Yeah. Most I know say, well, John Wesley said Israel was the elect people of God, but mm-hmm. he still punished a lot of them. You know, like just because they were elect didn't mean everything they did was right. That's never been the understanding of elect. To be the elect is just to be people that God calls out of the world and following him. And then we can live into our election or we can reject our election. But just because we're elect doesn't mean that everything we do is right. So that's that's yeah. always seemed like a strange thing to, to correct. And, you know, so, yeah, of course yeah. Israel can so do that's, things wrong. That's, that brings us back to this word unconditional. Yeah. Are we as Bible believers required to unconditionally support the modern political atheistic nation of Israel? Hmm. And I don't support anything unconditionally. I don't support my own government unconditionally. Uh, I'm, I'm unconditionally surrendered to Jesus and nothing else. Yeah. So what, um, what do we mean by unconditional? So like I unconditionally fight 
for pray for the salvation of Israel. Sure. So there, there's so you know United Methodist hymnals uh, have that. Um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall anything, uh, all these yeah. prowlers and princes, yeah. nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's what I mean whenever yeah. I'm talking about unconditional. It's There is nothing well, that can interfere with God's plans and purposes here. Of course, that's taken directly out of Romans 8. Right. But um, earlier in Romans 8, there is this statement that um, those who set their mind on the flesh is death. Yes. But to set their mind on the spirit is life and peace. Yes. And so he goes on to say, for you brothers, and he's speaking of those who are spiritually in Christ, mm -hmm. for you to live according to the flesh, you will die. That that means the covenant is conditional. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, Vic, I, I read recently... Um, I'm forgetting the name of the guy at Asbury. He's a Baptist, but he was summing up. He did a commentary on Revelation. He said John Wesley actually believed in two millennial reigns. Um, I'm, I, I don't think he—so modern-day uh, Schofield dispensationalists believe that Jesus comes back in, like, secret, and then he comes and it's public— I, don't, I yeah. very much doubt John Wesley believed that John, uh, that Jesus returned privately twice before mm -hmm. a final public debut. No. I knew not—how how did John okay. Wesley think of this? Go ahead. All right. Uh, so essentially, um, it was modern dispensationalism that, that by necessity had to have a secret rapture to take the church out. Oh, right, yes. Because now—but um, essentially, Wesley— when he wrote his explanatory notes upon the New Testament, uh -huh. when he gets to the book of Revelation, he defers to a very famous commentator of another day called Bingle. And Bingle is the one who taught to two millennia. That was, he was premillennial and postmillennial. Christ comes before and after. Now, Wesley's very clear that he does not necessarily endorse Bingle, but he's making Bengal scholarship available uh, to the Methodist people. Hmm. I think that was very unfortunate because, you know, the explanatory notes on the New Testament mm -hmm. it, in the United Methodist Church was an official source of doctrine. Mm -hmm. And yet the final commentary on Revelation, Wesley himself didn't necessarily agree to it. And so okay. um, that, that's, that's kind of messy. Uh, yeah. Now, John Fletcher apparently d did buy into this two-millennial idea, but no, I have read nearly all the extant classic Methodist literature on eschatology, mm -hmm. and what I would say as a whole is when they start talking about eschatology, they're talking about prepare for judgment, flee the wrath to come. They, they typically avoid speculation. And, and all of this um, uh, kind of trying trying to anticipate who might be the Antichrist and all of that kind of a thing. Uh -huh. They they are very non-speculative. They they're very grounded uh -huh. in in the salvation message. Yeah. But I think it's very unfortunate uh, that Wesley uh, deferred to a guy who had some. He was brilliant, but he was an eccentric genius as you, you know the type mm -hmm. they're great when they're on and they're they're confusing when they're off yeah yeah 
Well, so, so that's the short answer to that. I hear you. Yeah. So let's if if this will be your opinion now, not speaking for the whole Methodist family, but your opinion uh-huh. is it possible for someone to be a good Methodist and to uh, hold to some parts of this? Uh, well, let's it it'll be just fine. You you can hurt. It won't hurt my feelings. But do you think no. someone who holds the 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 framework that I have can be a good Methodist, or do you think that that believing that that the Christian covenant takes the place of all the previous covenants, do you think that that is so essential to Methodism that something is lost if we don't hold to it? Well, I, I think something may be lost if we don't process this adequately. Mm-hmm. But I want to say that if we can agree on essentials, and I started off with those five essentials, mm-hmm. if we can agree on essentials, Methodism has always allowed for people to think and let think on secondary issues. In the character of a Methodist written by John Wesley, but as to all opinions which do not strike at the root of Christianity, Mm -hmm. we think and let think. And so um, I would say that timing, pre, post, all these kinds of things are secondary issues. Now, they're not for some people, because one conservative Baptist denomination spent twice as much space in their statement of faith defining these fine points of eschatology mm-hmm. as they spent on scripture, Christ, and salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, let me say that's not Methodism. Okay. I hear you. Yeah. And, and good Methodism lives and let lives. See, but the problem is everything I'm passionate about is not secondary. And, <laughs> and, and I've got to work this out. What is fundamental? Christ yeah. is coming again. Well, the when part. is he coming? How is he coming? Well, as long as you don't blatantly and knowingly contradict Scripture, mm-hmm. I think there's latitude, and we can live and let live. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Jeffrey, um, I have been in situations in which I was required to affirm certain eschatological positions mm-hmm. in order to be in fellowship with them. Right. And I very kindly and quietly left when the door opened because that's not Methodism. Mm-hmm. And so I want to argue that uh, I, we, we, should, we should not take a doctrinal position on secondary issues. Um, we should be broad enough, if you believe the Bible, mm-hmm. you can be pre-mill, post-mill, or all-mill, or whatever other options may be on the table. Mm-hmm. But there are, but that does not mean then that these issues don't matter. They do, they do matter drastically mm-hmm. if we're consistent with our conclusions. They, they lead us to certain conclusions. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing I've heard you, the concern I've heard you lift up is if you adopt the family of ideas around modern dispensationalism, you're not going to have the proper motivation for good works or participating in the kingdom of Shalom because you've misidentified yeah. where you are. Um, well, frankly, some people who hold that position doctrinally do that mm-hmm. yeah. in their own lifestyle. Yeah. And so thank God for the inconsistency when, <laughs> when it's to the benefit of the kingdom. Yeah, I but you. I still think that, that the church needs hope. 
as much as it needs anything. Yeah. And if I can just put it in simple language, Wesley, as you read in Romans 11, expected all Israel mm-hmm. to, to come to faith. Mm-hmm. Well, that hasn't happened yet. No. So that means, that means then that there's going to be a revival at the end of time. Mm-hmm. So the post-millennial view believes that if, if a lot of Jews get saved, God's not going to call out the Gentiles that want to get saved too, because it, that doesn't really matter. So there's going to be a turning to Christ mm-hmm. at some point when we've reached the end of our tether and realized that all of our stuff doesn't work. There's going to be a turning to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we have a theological basis for hope that no other position eschatologically can have. Mm-hmm. And yet, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, those people individually have hope, even if their theology is is not all that we think it ought to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, and who? Uh, we, it's a wonderful thing to strive for perfect doctrine, uh, mm-hmm. But if that uh, that that quickly becomes a dead orthodoxy, as as Miss, mm-hmm. Mr. Wesley uh, warned about, the so we've gotten into, I mean, we could talk. I well, I don't know. You're probably done, <laughs> but I could talk for hours more about it because it it has so many uh-huh. different directions it can go. But I, I think we have done a good job in just uh, defining the terms, talking about the family of idea, families of ideas around both extremes. I appreciated you saying it's not always an either or thing. It yep. seems to me, at least at this point, like I am taking from different strands and putting them together. And mm-hmm. if they don't fit together yet, I'm just too stupid to see it because it feels like it fits pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm curious to know people who spent time with, with me and Mr. Reasoner. I mean, <laughs> we've run our course. Uh, we might, okay. you know, if, if there's something that we've really neglected, maybe we can put this yep. together some other time to, to cover some things. But my hope with this was just that people who watch this and listen to this would feel more confident in understanding the different things at play and that mm-hmm. we can have the robust conversation that I hear you calling for as well in yes. what do we want to reclaim about being Methodist? Where do we want to exercise some latitude and grace? Yeah. And I hear you saying this is an important issue, but it is a secondary issue to salvation, and we can make That's room right. in this tent yeah. for various positions. So, Jeffrey, it occurs to me in my optimism that you and I, may unite the church. Wonderful. They may they may agree <laughs> that we're both wrong. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that might be the case. <laughs> well, I'd like to think you and I both have the humility to to continue examining these things and applying them and I'm certainly going to be thinking about this long after uh, this conversation. So thank you for bearing with me and um, uh, explaining and likewise. Well, I I don't know how helpful I've been, but you, you've clearly been swimming in these waters a long time, and, and uh, I've been very dense, so thank you so much. Um, any, anything else that you, you think needs to be said for our audience before we say goodbye to them? Well, it, there's always the, um, the tendency to want to come back mm-hmm. and, and get in one final argument, but I think um, in the, the greater part of wisdom is to quit while we're ahead. Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, friends, we, we thank you so much for joining us and bearing with us. Uh, we, we prayed before we began this that God would make us instruments of bringing people closer to Him, and, and we pray that that's been the, the consequence of this. We hope we've driven you into your Bibles and that you're looking at how these things fit together and that this draws you closer to your fellowship 
in your church. So if this is something that that made you more confident and more uh, angry, then uh, that's the opposite of what we wanted to do. We wanted yes, people to be drawn in a, a humble spirit to to seek wisdom from one another. We hope that that churches are bound together with an understanding that, uh, well, heck, how about this is the the final analysis? These are the five essential doctrines that Mr. Reasoner promotes. There is a literal second coming, a second advent. Jesus Christ will literally return a second time. There will be a resurrection of all humanity from the dead. There will be a final judgment of all of them. There is a heaven that's real that people will go to. There is a hell that is real that people will go to. So if if these are the five, if, if Mr. Reasoner becomes king of the Methodist kingdom, everybody who holds <laughs> these five can fit happily in the Methodist fold. Um, so yeah, talk about those. Take those to your Sunday school class or your, your even better, a Wesleyan class meeting. Talk about these things and make them real to you. Uh, just want to say a closing note. Thanks to everybody who supports Plain Spoken. If you want to support me in this kind of work, you can go to plainspoken.locals.com where you can uh, fund this ministry and make possible a lot more things like this. And uh, we'll have links on the show notes to how you can support Vic and his work, how you can sign up for the Arminian magazine that he publishes and be a part of the work that he's doing, very important work. So, Vic, thank you so much for spending time with me. And, uh, Thanks, we'll, Jeff. I've enjoyed it. Very good. All right. Bye, friends.